Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the DX Mentor Podcast, the International DX Convention or Visalia. Thank you for joining us. This special episode is sponsored by ICOM America, makers of the finest radios and accessories for your amateur radio station, and by the Daily DX, the best source for real-time DX information. This episode is also sponsored by the Southwest Ohio DX Association, one of the premier DX clubs in the nation. I'm Bill, AJ8B, the DX Mentor. My guests are DX gurus that we can all learn from. The guests for this podcast are Scott, K0MD, and Ned, AA7A. As you know, I always ask for an update on achievement from our listeners, and I was not disappointed this week. I received the following from Ernie, W8 Echo Hotel. The results are out for the December 2022 ARRL 160-meter CW contest. I won first place in Ohio in the Single Operator Unlimited High Power Class. I also placed third in the Great Lakes Division and 45th in the U.S. Stroke VE Division. I made 761 contacts over two nights for 101,728 points. Not my best score, but conditions that weekend were not great on 160, and it was just enough. My 160-meter station is an ICOM IC7610, a Drake L7 amplifier, and an inverted L supported by my 30-foot tower. Congratulations to Ernie for a job well done. He's a great operator, and, and I'm not really surprised he did so well. Good job. I'd also like to say a special hello to my friend, Bob McCullough. Bob is not yet a ham, but listens to every episode and has had some great questions during our recent sailing excursion together. Hello to Bob, and keep those questions coming, my friend. We're going to get you licensed up soon enough. Now, let's tune into our gurus and find out what they're discussing about Visalia. Well, hello, and uh, welcome to this special edition of the DX Mentor Podcast. I'm Bill AJB, uh, and I am absolutely thrilled uh, that I'm able to bring this to you. Uh, we have two distinguished uh, hams who are with us tonight to talk about the uh, 74th uh, International DX Convention held in Visalia, or I think uh, for me, more comfortably simply known as Visalia. Um, and I'd like to uh, let them introduce themselves and what their role was. And then uh, Scott K0MD is going to be driving us and uh, we're going to have a free for all and, and talk about this convention that um, those of us in the Midwest and the East uh, need to make uh, more of an effort to attend. Um, so uh, Scott, take it away. Thank you, Bill. Hello, everybody. I'm Scott K0MD. I uh, was a speaker at Visalia, uh, an attendee, as well as a one of the medical advisors on their COVID mitigation efforts uh, for the meeting. Uh, this is the first year in four years that Ned and his team put Isalia on. And it's really, I think, the preeminent DX and contest meeting uh, in the United States every year. So I was grateful they went to the work to do it and delighted to have attended it. And I think after you hear us talk about it, you'll definitely want to be there the next time it's uh, put on. Okay. And we also have Ned, AA7A. Ned? Yeah, well, good. Hello, uh, Ned Stearns, AA7A. I was uh, one of the, one of the co-chairs of the convention this year. I was just going through the email uh, collection I had amassed over the past uh, uh, fifteen months, uh, and and it, it amazed me that we actually started this journey fifteen months ago. And and when we did start, it was it was about the time when the efforts to hold the meeting in uh, twenty twenty two. Uh, sort of uh, got off the rails, uh, given the, the, the still the effects of, of COVID. So uh, 
uh, Scott was very instrumental in giving us guidance and, and, and pointing the way to get the information we needed to uh, properly plan this convention. And his prediction was that, that uh, this would, the effects of COVID would abate and be especially minimum in the, in the springtime, which uh, turned out to be absolutely true. So, uh, so as a labor of love, first time for me to be a co-chair, I've been involved with the convention for many years, probably been involved in, in some aspect of the convention, probably 15 years, but, but the, my club, uh, Central Arizona DX, uh, joined forces with Northern Cal DX uh, club and uh, put together the staff that uh, ran the affair this year. And uh, from all accounts, uh, everybody walked away very, very happy. I mean, it was a lot of smiling faces. Everybody was just so glad to be, uh, you know, uh, out of their out of their basement and meeting with old friends. So we got so we got the band back together, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was just a lot of fun. Well, there's one aspect I'd like you to touch on later, uh, and Scott may have a slide, but what absolutely blew me away going through the website was the um, the prizes. Uh, my goodness, you had you know top line radios from various manufacturers, and and not just one or two of them, but a bunch of them. So. Um, I think that speaks to your credibility and that of the committee and the convention, and of course, the attendees, how well it attended it was. But wow, uh, that very impressive lineup. So my hat's off to you. So, Scott, if you want to get started um, with, with your slides, and we'll do our best uh, to describe this both uh, um, for our podcast as well as then the follow up on YouTube, uh, and I'm sure we'll be able to handle it. So go ahead. Thanks, Bill. Well, the International DX and Contest Convention uh, has been held in Visalia, California for a large number of years. Uh, Ned, uh, maybe you know the history a lot better than I do, but uh, this is how many years going? This is the, uh, well, you're going you're gonna to cause me to panic on that. I think it's the 77th uh, uh, year of holding this event. It started out as a uh, just a small uh, number of uh, DXers that uh, met. I think it might have started in the in the uh, LA area, but quickly uh, uh, became an event that involved uh, hams across the state of California, and and they met in either Fresno or or Visalia uh, every year until 2019 for for quite a few years. And but there's there was the gap here, obviously because of COVID, and and we we're back on on track again for uh, hopefully running this event uh, every year going forward. Yes, um, I attended in 2018 and 2019 and maybe even 2017. And uh, it's really an amazing conference. If you like DXing, if you like contesting, if you like HF, six meter DXing, the who's who globally come. It's a it's an international meeting. Uh, Chris, who's chair of the Chiltern DX Club, came with his wife. Uh, a number of UK hams, a number of fin Finnish hams and Swedish hams, and uh, there were some VKs and uh, ZLs there. Uh, this year, I didn't see a lot of uh, Japanese amateurs, but in the past, I have. And it's really just a neat uh, grouping of people. Uh, you meet the the people that you've worked who've been the major leaders of uh, D expeditions. You know, every morning we were treated to this beautiful California sunrise, and this is right over the uh, 
conference center where it was held. If you look carefully at this, you can see there was a U.S. tower cranked up with a hex beam. So they had a they had a special event station going, but almost all the attendees really ignored that because they were there to talk with the friends and fellow DXers and hear about the expeditions and especially about the Bouvet D expedition uh, and uh, just really talk about where we've all been in the last uh, four years. Uh, people were just so happy to be there. You know, it's a largely a California gathering. A few a few of us will fly in, uh, but here, uh, you, you know, we saw a lot of cars in the parking lot. This is K7 BTW and KF6 JAD brought his truck, uh, and uh, there were just a number of hams who were there uh, who came. Uh, you know, you can see in this photo, I, you know, my friend K4IU from uh, my commu home community of Rochester, Minnesota, came with me. And in the, his photo is with Tom Schiller, who found an N6BT and now has next generation uh, uh, antennas. And Tom's significant other, Vicki Zemmelt, N6KLS. Uh, uh, and they had a booth in the exhibition hall. And then, of course, uh, some of the convention planning committee. Everyone knows Lee Finkel, KY7M, very accomplished DXer, part of the Voodoo DX group with Ned. Lee's also editor of the National Contest Journal, accomplished individual. And then also Daryl, K7UT from Utah. I had never met Daryl. Uh, we have worked many times in sweepstakes and in the NAQP. And uh, I told him it was so nice to meet the uh, the, the wonderful and, uh, you know, buoyant voice behind uh, all of those 5-9 uh, Utah when I would work him. And I always look forward to working him in any domestic event and contest. On um, Saturday, sorry, on Thursday evening after we arrived, we'd organized a dinner and, uh, you know, Ned came. Ned's been a top 10D expeditioner many times. Dave Anderson, K4SV attended, who's been a top 10D expeditioner. Glenn Johnson came to dinner. Adrian and Mike, who were on the Bouvet team, joined us for dinner. Tom Schiller and Vicky joined us for dinner. Dan White, W5DNT, also came and uh He's a major funder for D-Expeditions uh, out of Texas. And then Greg uh, K1IT also joined us from uh, uh, Greer, South Carolina. He and Dave had driven all the way from basically the uh, Greenville, South Carolina area in Dave's Tesla. And Dave regaled us all at that end of the table with driving the entire car in autopilot, just touching the steering wheel, paying attention. But it drove uh, him and Greg all the way uh, out to Visalia. And then Adrian asked for a few minutes at the end of dinner and wanted to present a special thank you award to Glenn Johnson, W0GJ. And you might be saying, well, well why did the, the, the Bouvet team want to present Glenn a special award? And the answer was that uh, anyone who worked uh, Bouvet on FT8 recognized that there was a time sink problem in the first 100 or 200 QSOs with FT8. And people were speculating, at least in our contest and DX reflectors, about whether that was a real station from Bouvet or a pirate you know, but what it turns out that Glenn had loaned his satellite phone to Adrian, and that became the time sync source for all of the FDA contacts. So one generous ham from Decorah, Iowa, loaned his satellite phone to Adrian, and that allowed the entire world to then better, more efficiently work Bouvet on FT8. And so they presented Glenn uh, a certificate. And then you can see, if you if you look at the YouTube presentation, you'll see a tiny little rock, piece of rock. That's a piece of rock from Bouvet that they brought back as a gift for Glenn. And it was quite the story to hear them talk about coming through customs with the rocks and explaining to the customs officials uh, uh, why they had them. 
And here is another picture of a Bouvet rock they showed. We all got to hold this this piece of rock. It looks like any volcanic ash, but I wasn't I wasn't sure what to expect from Bouvet. Ned, I don't know what you thought, but it sure looked like volcanic rock to me. It looked like something pretty hard to have to pound a, either a guy anchor into or a ground rod. Well, my fear of taking anything off these uh, Antarctic islands that it might be some byproduct of a penguin. So I, I generally uh, <laughs> uh, try not to handle anything that comes from one of these the expeditions. Well said. And then uh, we also had met Mike, who was one of the team physicians on Bouvet, and uh, Dave, a WD5COV, who also uh, was a member of the D expedition. And they shared with us, uh, you know, some of the strategies they used. And uh, Mike and the other physician on the team from uh, the Seven Land here in Arizona uh, was very good about, uh, they both were quite good about stressing prevention. Don't sprain your ankle. Don't fracture a limb because we don't have an emergency room within a thousand miles to take you to. So the first day of the, the uh, Visalia meeting is the uh, DX and contest universities. So if you want to learn how to be a better DXer or a contester, and here's Dave, WD5COV lecturing. There were probably 50 to 100 hams in each of those forums. And then they also had a second stream going across the hall. There were two rooms on one side of the hall, DX and Contest University. And then on the other side were just a big room with a couple hundred people talking about DX and contest activities. And here's an example of the DX forum that was there. You can see the room was really full. It was standing room only. Uh, and uh, in one photo, you can see my uh, travel mate, K4IU Fred, and my good friend, Dan, W5DNT, who were there. Lots of questions that we'll touch on in just a few minutes here. This was the contest forum, which was also there. Uh, Bob Wilson in 6TV does a nice job of making it like the uh, McNeil Air report, where he has poses questions and tries to generate controversy. So he always invites a uh, Whiskey Two Golf uh, Delta John Cravoli, who's not shy about sharing opinions or saying controversial things, and then Kim Duffy K3LR, who's got a huge contestation in in Western Pennsylvania. Craig Thompson K9CT, a big multi-two contestation in Travoli, Illinois, and chair of the contest advisory committee. And then one of the ARRL Southwest Division director, uh, uh, Dick Norton, was there also. Dick comes every year in a suit and tie, and uh, he. Uh, uh, he was he was also provocative. Uh, there was some discussion about self-spotting and sideband contesting, and uh, several uh, one one of the panelists was against it. The other two thought it was an appropriate thing, and then Dick Norton said he would throw spotting out altogether if 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 he could because he thinks that's just uh, not the way it was all designed to be from the beginning. So there was quite a difference in in philosophy and opinion there. Now let's hear a quick word about an upcoming DX event. Hey, what are the drinks for? Cheers to another year. Cheers? What are we toasting? Well, I just finished reading the latest Swadexa newsletter, announcing the 36th annual DX Dinner, held in conjunction with the 2023 Dayton Hamvention. Ah, well, thanks for reading it. Do you think you can make it to the dinner? Absolutely. I already put it on the calendar, Friday, May 19th. Hey, it's still at the University of Dayton Marriott, right? Yeah, it sure is. That's a great venue with great food and a terrific location, and we have another year of fantastic prizes. Ooh, sounds fabulous. I've got the date, but I need to add the time. When does the dinner start? Well, the dinner starts at 7, but there's a cash bar at 5.30, and then there'll be time after the dinner to network, connect, and reconnect with other DXers. You expect many people this year? This dinner is always well attended by some of the most avid DXers in the world. Previous dinners have had over 400 attendees. As in the past, there will be some major door prizes, especially the grand prize sponsored by ICOM. 
There's always great anticipation as to who will be named the D-Expedition of the Year, as well as who will be inducted into the CQ DX Hall of Fame. I bet your dad's looking forward to this. Does the Marriott have handicap accessible parking? Well, sure. The Marriott is very accommodating to a group our size. The dining room is very large and located on the ground floor, so there are no steps, and there's ample, free, on-site parking. Well, I can't wait to hear who gets the D-Expedition of the Year Award. Hey, who's your keynote speaker this year? Well, the keynote speaker is Adrian, K-O-8-S-C-A. He's a veteran of many D-Expeditions, and he'll be fresh off the Bouvet trip. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. You know what? I put the date on the calendar and the time, but I did not order the tickets. Tell me again where I can go grab some. Tickets can be purchased on the Swadexa Events website at swadexaevents.org slash purchase hyphen tickets. Program details and a list of the prizes are already on the website, so check them out. Let's make a date of it. I'm in. Uh, here's the banquet. This is on Saturday night, and there was at least 500 people having a great meal. You could have uh, a choice of a very nice steak, nice salmon, which I had, or chicken. Uh, and uh, then the uh, banquet speaker was uh, the, uh, the team from Bouvet, Adrian, K-O-8-S-C-A, Dave, W-D-5-C-O-V, and Mike. I think he's 85 Echo Bravo spoke, and I think they went almost two hours with their presentation. Wow. So a lot of a lot of detail about that. And uh, maybe Ned would uh, like to just comment on some of the interesting things he learned from their their banquet talk about uh, about Bouvet, uh, maybe even a bit more than was on the, this uh, mentor podcast a few weeks ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, the uh, the Saturday banquet uh, is always a uh, the, the, the big attraction uh, every year we try to bring. Uh, the most interesting uh, story to to the convention, uh, and sometimes it works well, and sometimes it it, it blows up in your face, and uh, uh, just kind of the way it works. Uh, and we have, you know, uh, we have memories of, of uh, good memories of many of the uh, talks, and then we don't talk about the other ones. But but this 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 talk uh, on Saturday night was was a little long, but I think it was warranted because the story is incredibly uh, uh, complex. Uh, you know, the challenges that that team uh, had to face were unique. I mean, the, the history of uh, Antarctic de-expedition has uh, recently been dominated by uh, activities that were run off the uh, uh, the Braveheart uh, vessel and they, their team, uh, you know, of sailors uh, who are, as I put it, uh, also members of a, a New Zealand rugby team that, that helps Ham's uh, uh, get on the island and and uh, live on the island during their operation, uh, but that is behind us. That uh, boat, that team is no longer in play, uh, and the uh, uh, this the twenty twenty three Bouvet operation uh, tried something different. They took a, a, a two hull sailboat uh, with a smaller uh, crew and a, and a crew that really didn't. Uh, uh, provide any support uh, to any, uh, much outside of, you know, working the Zodiac uh, uh, towards the shore, uh, didn't help them with provisioning and the like on the shore. So the members of the team had to physically get through the surf, you know, and climb the mountain or the hills and drag all the gear themselves. So, so it was a real challenge uh, physically, uh, uh, emotionally, uh, and there were some uh, events that occurred that were just really challenging, uh, you know, almost almost life threatening to to a small degree. So the story uh, needed to be told, and and the three speakers uh, would rotate through uh, and giving their you know their world you know their view 
which was fascinating and 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 worth uh, sharing with uh, with the DX community. So uh, it was a great great talk. Uh, uh, the results uh, people beg for more, and I'm sure there's going to be another uh, visit to the island uh, in the future. You know, I remember early on one of the big objections that the community seemed to have surrounded the type of boat they were they had selected. Um, and yet, uh, I have not heard anything that indicated that was a, that was a bad choice. There was a lot of other issues, perhaps that, that I've talked to Adrian about, but that that boat was flawless and just performed like they thought it would. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it one of the members of the Northern Cal DX Foundation, of which I'm a member, a director, uh, is a. Uh, I mean, he designs and builds boats, and he gave his opinion recently that he felt that uh, really this 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 type of boat. I mean, it's aluminum hull, lightweight. Uh, it's sleek, and it and it and it rides with the waves uh, much better than a heavy steel hulled uh, boat. Uh, and so the uh, the punishment to the uh, people on board is is much less. Um, but but it took them two and a half days to load that boat because everything had to be strapped down really really tight. Otherwise, you'd have you know projectiles uh, all through the hull. So uh, so it took a little bit longer. Uh, to prepare, and it, it, and I think their average they average like eight knots or something like that. So it was a little. It took a, an extra day or two to get there, but uh, but uh, it, it it served them well uh, to get there. Wow. Yeah, they told us of stories of waves forty to eighty feet high coming up in the South Atlantic, which uh, would be scary to me. But I know Ned has sailed in those waters, and uh, the boat would list up to forty degrees on its side, but it would always recover. And that really inspired them. And they took turns standing watch. Uh, the captain could only stand for so many hours a day and drive the boat. And so the crew was all trained to help drive it as well. And, uh, you know, they had a cook on board and they had one, one crewmate. So a total of three, I think, crew members and then the team. So they really did pitch in and help with this. And uh, they had a consultant that I learned about who was a, an Antarctic vacation or extreme vacation consultant who actually, I think, uh, was a lot of the reason for the success of the safety of the journey of how he just demanded and insisted that everything be wrapped down. It took them several hours of re-attempting to just strap down empty jugs with water, for example. And then he is the one who designed the closed ring system that allowed them to get on the island and to pull things on. Uh, and to hear them tell the stories about the summation of two eight-foot waves becoming a 12-foot wave and crashing on shore and pulling you and your boat and your tent and your bag out and other members running to grab you to keep you from going out to sea. Wow. And uh, it was, uh, you know, despite all the maybe frustrations of the DX community at not getting uh, a dozen band modes from this team, uh, they really risked their lives and souls doing this. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, this was all, of, they did it for, for the fun of the hobby and just as a commitment to DXing. And so, um, you know, I'm especially grateful for them because it was an all-time new one for me. And I have one contact, but that's enough. And I have credit in LOTW. So, uh, you know, I do hope somebody will go back. I would love to work them on 80 and 160 if it ever becomes possible. But these are extreme conditions. And uh I think they have to plan to be on this island, to get on the island and to survive on the island like NASA did to put astronauts on the moon. Uh, I, I don't know that it's any easier to go to Bouvet. And Ned, was that your impression maybe? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd heard that there are more people have been in, on the moon than have been on uh, 
has never been on the islands of uh, Bouvet. So it's a, it's a, it it is treacherous to land, and 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 survival is is requires uh, you to have a good a good plan and and backups. Uh, and and they, they were tested. I mean, they their first attempt to to land. Um, they did get a number of, of their team on the island to do some early reconnaissance, and and they had to uh, regroup after that first launch and come up with a whole different way of getting their equipment on. They had a very large generator, which they could no way they can get on shore, and they and they also came up with something unique. They essentially created uh, flotation uh, bubbles uh, for chunks of their their gear so that, that they, it would stay afloat and they would. You know, uh, as as uh, Scott had mentioned, they had a clothesline pulley system, which was anchored uh, out up, up beyond the the the, uh, the brake line of the of the surf, and then they, uh, the members on the on shore would pull in the gear uh, with this uh, <laughs> method that uh, was took a lot of physical strength. And something you don't realize, and I, it didn't hit me until I started seeing the pictures of the island that that, that, that you know you used to. Seeing surf like in you know, Oahu or something like that, and it rolls in, rolls in, and and the you can walk out to you know two three hundred feet in your waist deep in water, but but at this shore it was like a forty five degree angle. So so when that surf hit you, it pulled you straight underwater and down that hill. Wow. You know, the minute you get through the surf, you're climbing uphill. So so it's a very very difficult uh, landing. Is uh, and I guess unless you're there and. You know, we were virtually there, seeing seeing uh, seeing all the video clips and listening to them talk, and it just it just is different than anything you're used to. And there's no preparing for it. You can train all you want where you want, but but when you get here, it exceeds anything you had uh, tried to do before. And the water, of course, is Antarctic temperature. It's 35, 40, 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not like a warm bath. It's a frigidly cold water that you can die in in a few minutes from shock and other things. Um, I think something Ned said is maybe worth just highlighting again, because for those of us who have worked a lot of top 10 D expedition groups who've been on the Braveheart, we've, we've maybe failed to recognize that something in the Ned is so nicely pointed out, which is that um, prior to the Bouvet D expedition, there were a group of a well uh, uh, a group of, of people in superb shape who uh, could lift 50 to 200 pounds and carry it in and and put it up and save the ham operators who largely are weekend warriors, right? Most most ham operators are not in the shape to play a professional sport like rugby or U.S. football or soccer. And so um, you have a lot of middle-aged and uh, older men and a few women occasionally going to expeditions who are not the best of shape. And uh, they had the, the crews that would carry these 250-pound generators onto the island and help them get it set up and then take it down at the end. But the team at Bouvet didn't have any of that. So they were it was a do-it-yourself, a DIY project the whole way. And, uh, uh, you know, it was um, really hard. And I think, uh, you know, going forward, the expedition teams may have to think about having sort of a balance of experienced senior operators and healthy younger adults who can do this and have some physical training requirements or some strenuous testing requirements uh, to go. And if and just to add, uh, you know, uh, salt in the wound, this when this team got back to South Africa, 
after not having had uh, a warm shower for a month and not having had many warm meals, certainly not having beef more than once in 40 days, they got into the harbor and Cape Town is just beautiful in the harbor from all the pictures I've seen. And they couldn't get on the island, get, sorry, get on get on the African continent for a day because uh, the uh, slip was full and their boat had to sit out there. And so their dreams of getting into a, a hotel and having a warm shower and a comfortable bed was delayed another 24 hours. And, uh, you know, that would have broken a lot of people, but they stayed, they kept their stiff upper lip going and just managed and went right on. Wow. I can remember Adrian um, in the conversation we had talking about they regrouped and they kind of took a vote. So who wanted to go on the island uh, via the water, right, the water method and who would stay behind? I got to tell you, I I was thinking, boy, if I was there, I don't know that I would have been up for jumping in the uh, cold water and trying to shuttle myself to the island. That that would have been a whole different decision that that I would think maybe I was in shape to do X. But now I've got to do X in a very dangerous environment. And I don't know that I would have been up for that. I probably would have stayed behind. Um, well, I, I was given a, a shot to, I was the first to walk ashore on South Sandwich in the VP at SSI, the expedition 2016. And, and I, I'm just adventurous. And, you know, and when we got close to shore and the captain said, okay, jump in the water and walk ashore i didn't i didn't think twice because i figured he knew what he was talking about uh but when i jumped in the water uh it, i didn't land on i landed on rocks and i was surrounded by seals and and there was large chunks of ice flying all around me and it was interesting but i got you know got aboard and that was the only way we could have gotten on 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 the island so it, you know it, when you're faced with doing something challenging uh you usually your 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 gut uh, you know it guides you into making the right decision i know that uh <laughs> that while i was well, while we were landing on the island the people on the boat were on binoculars and they're watching us and and uh paul in 6 psc was sort of giving blow by blow details of the landing uh to the worldwide net and he mentioned uh, oh my someone fell in the water and uh, of course, I didn't fall in the water. I jumped. It's a big difference, I, you know. Uh, and my wife told me uh, as she was listening to these or watching these posts, and and when she saw that someone had fallen in the water, she knew that was me. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it it's it's just it's a tough decision when you're when you're there. You, you, your your gut gut will tell you uh, what you're going to do. And I know that not everybody on the team went ashore. Not everybody was uh, capable of doing that, um, and and you know that's that has to be worked. There there has to be some additional uh, another idea that has to be created uh, and brought to to bear on on, a, on the next landing there. So um, we'll see how it goes. Okay, I think uh, I do think some of the team members who did not operate were able to go the last day. And help take some of the things off the island. So a number of them did get to set foot on the island, even for just a few hours. But um, the the one of the challenges that most of us may not realize is that the initial landing crew got stranded there for several days because of weather. They couldn't get the raft back to them. One of the rafts got punctured and was lost to sea. So they lost one of their life rafts. And so they the first night they had to. They didn't have a tent up and they hid in a crevice and they stayed very close to one another to stay warm. And it was so cold that they couldn't go to sleep. 
because their fingers and toes hurt. So they just walked around and tried to stay alert and wait until the sun came up to warm them up. Uh, they also, um, you know, had very few days. Uh, I think they were there three or four days waiting on, they, they had food, but it wasn't, you know, meals like we think. And they had to eat sort of military rations uh, the whole time. When they did get everything set up, they were in a small tent <laughs> sitting on the ground, right? With radios on like a milk crate turned upside down or a bucket, actually, and one on top, one K3 on top of another. It was like an extreme field day venture. And uh, yeah, and then not having the computer time sync because they, they couldn't even get a, a computer that would work with FT8. They had to engineer that. Uh, yeah. Once you hear the story from them firsthand, uh, you, you become much less critical of maybe what they did not do and much more grateful for what they actually did do, pulling it off and uh, realizing that uh, they put all this stuff at risk and they all, they each paid twenty five or 30000 or more to go just so we could work them. Wow, that's a real gift to the DX community yeah. that we should really, uh, you know, be grateful for and honor them uh, with appreciation. So. Well, right. let me just uh, move on. There was a number of issues that came up in the DX forum that uh, Ned is particularly well suited to maybe comment on as well. I think the listeners might be find it interesting. So one of the top issues that came up was the cost of the expeditions. Now, of course, Bouvet was three quarters of a million dollars or close, but the upcoming Pitcairn trip is going to be well over 300000 uh, and uh, again, it goes back to one key factor. That's the loss of the Braveheart. And so the crew, Gene Spinelli and his team going to Pitcairn, I'm not Pitcairn, it's a uh, TX5. Help me think of the name here. Clipperton. Yeah, not not yeah. Pitcairn, it's Clipperton. Clipperton. Uh, you know, the loss of the Braveheart has resulted in them needing to lease or use a U.S.-based carrier, which means that they're paying for U.S. prices and U.S. wages, and that's good for the people on the ship, but it's at a higher cost to the DX community. And uh, there's also, you know, a realization that post-COVID, everything costs more, and clubs maybe are still using the, the donation limits they used before COVID, and maybe those limits should just be doubled or um, suggested amounts, and individuals should just double their donations because the costs seem to have doubled for even simple DX expeditions like Clipperton. And again, I apologize for calling it calling it Pitcairn, but it's Clipperton. And it turns out they, I guess this is something that's common knowledge. Ned may, maybe wants to comment, but they they need a lot of the money up front. Just to, they have to make the boat payment for Clipperton by December. And can they get the almost $300,000 they need to get that boat secured or the whole thing goes down the tubes? Yeah, as, as Scott says, the, the upfront funding is critical for even starting a project. You You need to need to put down deposits you need to buy the fuel um, before you even leave harbor and so and many people uh wait till they pay for you know their 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 confirmation using the online qso uh, system of qrs or other uh, methods to pay after the fact and unfortunately that's that's way late um and and the other thing is you're going to pay for that boat and for the fuel even if you land and make one contact and the weather moves in, you go home, you know, all those costs are there. So, so the, the grants by foundations, uh, you know, the uh, Northern Cal DX foundation being, you know, the, the largest in, in the world uh, usually is the key to success and, 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 and pulling off a, uh, an event. 
like these uh, islandy expeditions. Uh, so so uh, and we you know we we try to do everything we can to make sure that that uh, that our investments are are result in success. So we we you know vet all all uh, requests for grants and and we also provide advice many times we provide uh, operators uh to these uh expeditions uh, to help uh, guarantee their success another thing we're working on and i don't want to jump your your track here a little bit but we're also working on ways of reducing costs of the expeditions by this uh, this uh, new technology we're called radio in a box which i think we've touched on in previous uh, uh uh, uh, DX mentor uh, episodes and and it and it is uh, a, a another component of, of going forward where we can uh, uh, you know provide very high QSO rates with less uh, less operators uh, on the island uh, which is going to reduce costs provide you know permit maybe smaller vessels to be uh, used for some of these adventures so so uh, uh, as a, a you know Uves and have set some some high water marks for uh, uh, cost per QSO. Uh, I think it's something on the order of twenty five dollars per per contact, uh, yeah. or ninety dollars per person uh, contacted. Uh, so if you're sitting there hovering over your, you know, your button to how much you want to pay with the expedition, and you think five bucks means something, uh, some of these expeditions uh, uh, you might want to reconsider what it really costs. And if and if it's this is what you want to you know, you want to achieve something in this hobby, and it requires uh, these sort of efforts. You may may think about where where that fits in your in your ham radio budget. Uh, I personally, uh, I, I I donate to pretty much all large de expeditions, and I'm very happy to make one or none uh, QSOs. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I, I want I want to uh, the, the, this hobby to perpetuate. I want these teams to succeed so that. So that the next island they go to, or I do need them, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be, you know, uh, well equipped and seasoned operators, and I can, uh, you know, have a better chance of working them on that operation. So, uh, so I think that's so important uh, because I think the three of us will will readily say, and many people, when interviewed by great uh, ham radio interviewers like Eric Duth, four Z one UG, talk about how ham radio impacted their careers, you know, and uh, my the success of my career in the healthcare field. And the confidence to study medicine as a young student at the university was certainly helped by being an amateur radio operator and the technical skills that I gained, uh, even though I'm not the best kit builder, uh, uh, really helped prepare me. And I think Ned would uh, probably say the same as an engineer and you as a software expert, Bill, that ham radio really prepared us for what we did in life. And uh, and it, uh, I think it's really important to try to, to help make sure the next generation has this uh, opportunity and DXing is one of the great ways to do that. Uh, we could have debates all day long about how contesting may look in 10 or 20 years, but DXing, uh, you know, is still what really excites a lot of people. And uh, when people say to me, uh, they'll say, oh, you're a ham radio operator. Where's the, where, where's the farthest place you talk to? And I always say, name any country in the world. And I'll tell you if I've worked them. And almost all the time, they pick some place they think is really far away, like Australia. And I'll say every day, I can work them. Yeah, work them many times. So I, I think, as Ned says, we we all need to make a second effort to give a fair amount of money to all the D expeditions, even if we don't need them, because it's still a lot of fun. And as Gene Spinelli said in one of the forums, 
Most of the people working the expeditions don't need them for credit. They just enjoy the thrill of hearing a rare one on and getting back into the fray, you know? It's still totally true, yeah. Let's take a break to learn about the Daily DX. Hey, I just poured you a cup of coffee. You look pretty happy. How'd you do? I worked him on the third call. Can you believe it? You worked him on the third call? Seriously? I thought you just had that little pistol station. I do, but I have a secret weapon. A secret weapon? What is it? Information. I knew when they were on the air, their operating habits. Heck, I even knew the equipment they're using. I just had to be there when they came up on the band. I even beat the spotting network. Wow, how'd you manage all that? I get the Daily DX from Bernie, W3UR. In addition to the weekly and daily bulletins, I also receive special notices when things change in real time. I feel that I'm always on top of every de-expedition. So now you just need to confirm it, right? Yep, that's it. Bernie even helps me with that, giving me QSL routes and QSL managers if they don't use LOTW. The Daily DX is a DX bulletin sent via email to you Monday through Friday. It includes DX news, IOTA news, QSN reports, QSL information, a DX calendar, propagation forecast, and much, much more. With a subscription to the Daily DX, you will also receive DX news flashes and other interesting DX tidbits. Bernie's been an integral part of my confirming over 300 entities and WAZ while operating a modest station. W3UR Bernie is the editor, a member of the DX Honor Roll, a member of the 3000 Challenge Club, as well as the editor of the How's DX column in QST. He is uniquely positioned to have his finger on the pulse of the DX community and shares this information weekly. Why not let Bernie be your secret weapon? You can get a free two-week trial at www.dailydx.com. Now let's go have that cup of coffee and tune around. While we all did this. Well, there's another uh, thing that came up too. Uh, and Ned, I want to thank you and all the members of the Northern California DX Foundation for all you do to underwrite these the expeditions. I mean, NCDXF, uh, among all foundations, provides uh, a lot of money. Uh, what we learned from the Bouvet team was that raffle prizes help them raise thirty or forty thousand dollars. And uh, you know, I think that's something that the expeditions can learn. And so, those of us who bought some of the raffle prizes, I didn't, but I certainly will going forward, knowing how important it is for funding. And then a lot of hams, you know, are upset that the de-expeditions are asking them to pay $5 for a logbook upload or $10 with OQRS. And uh, as Gene Spinelli said on one of his de-expeditions, he said, we took no foundation money. We The team members paid ourselves. We worked you, but that doesn't mean you get a free QSL from us. You know, we spent our own money. You should help us uh, by paying for a QSL. And uh, I think, you know, Hams are notoriously frugal, right? We want everything at 50% off last discounted price, and that's just not happening with the expeditions. And um, I often pay extra or donate extra just so I can have an early logbook confirmation because I like to see it confirmed. And I think this really helps the DX, uh, DX community. And then, of course, I think the foundations really need to harmonize. I, I would like to see the European foundations do what NCDXF does. NCDXF says, okay, you can charge for a logbook upload until a year later, and then you need to put it up on logbook free. That's that's the contribution you're going to do for the community for us giving you money. 
But some of the foundations required at three months. And I think a lot of the expedition groups are going to have to decide, should I take the $5,000 from Foundation X if they're going to make me give away a lot of revenue just because they want me to put everything up for free at three months? And I know if I were a team member, I would say no. You know, we can, it's the, the cash flow is better if we just wait and get the money coming in. So I think that's something to really consider. And then the foundations, if any of the members from the European foundations and others are listening, I think they should copy what the NCDXF does. And uh, Ned, I'm sure you've had many discussions at the board about this and what, what more can be done. Maybe you could share how we can donate to NCDXF to help the, ensure the future of DXing. Yeah, well, well sure, the best way to uh, get you know, information on our mission is to go to our, our website, ncdxf.org. All the information is there. I'll probably rattle off a few errors if I try to paraphrase it. But uh, uh, we we have uh, been in existence for, I'm going to say, I don't recall, 40, 45 years now. Um, and it was all started with a grant from a single uh, individual. Uh, and we have uh, uh, nurtured those funds, and we've uh, grown uh, uh, to the point where we have uh, we have uh, awarded grants over two million dollars so far uh, to uh, I'm going to say 150 or 200 de expeditions, something in that neighborhood. I may be off on that, but that's my memory. And they're primarily to the top 25 or so because uh, that's where those are the ones that are challenging. They they aren't on the air for good reasons. Either they uh, require, you know, extraordinary uh, transportation uh, um, methods or they require lengthy uh, negotiations with various government agencies of, around the world. So, so, you know, we help with those and, and we provide actually, you know, in some cases, uh, many government agencies will need to know whether you are funded and so having these grants issued from our organization many times helps them complete negotiations with getting landing permits so it's a each each trip is different and and if you and many clubs i know my own central arizona dx we used to we used to send grant or you know small you know hundred dollar whatever uh, uh, grants to the expeditions and word would get out and then we get emails from everybody uh, to get the grants and, and it's just it's just not what we want to do is to process and vet you know whether that's a, a viable uh, investment or not so we we turned around and we just said now we're just going to do an annual grant to to northern cal and so over the years i believe we've submitted about fifteen thousand dollars in total uh, grants to the foundation for them to use to administer to uh, uh, worthy, well-managed uh, de-expedition uh, projects. So you know, that's, one, that's an approach that uh, we we suggested to be considered by other clubs. You know, the the two notes I've already made is that this is clear. There's clearly a paradigm shift, right? So me sending five dollars, thinking I'm helping a de-expedition, it's. I think the gesture is appreciated, but the the impact is is minimized. So I think we really do have to rethink that. Um, but I'll tell you the other benefit of the foundation, and it really hit this year in in the Southwest Club. You know, we we feel like we have a real uh, responsibility to know who's out there, who might get the expedition a year, and at the DX dinner and those kinds of things. So I know every club looks at it, and and I'm and I'm sure you know they do. But we seem to have a little bit of a I don't think a meeting goes by where we don't debate who's out there and 
however we think they're going to do, et cetera. So our our concern when um, when Bouvet was announced, I guess, what, three years ago now, was, well, the other group almost made it, but they didn't make it. And these guys are using a sailboat. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see how this comes out. And when NCDX came out and Indexa came out and said, here's our largest grants ever, the all of a sudden it was like, this is going to happen because these guys must have vetted the heck out of this. They must have really looked deep. They they looked at the people. They looked at the um, uh, of the credibility of everyone involved, and they're willing to commit that kind of money publicly. This is going to happen. So the fact that those foundations, you know, jumped in and, and were backing it um, quickly, uh, really helped set the tone. As far as I was concerned, in the rest of the community, all of a sudden it wasn't a will. Are they going to do it? It's they are going to do it. And now let's get behind them and get going. So. The credibility that the foundations have is terrific, and and when they do back something like that, it does have an effect everywhere. Um, so that that was just a great move. Yeah, no, we've heard that. Yeah, I okay. agree. I I use that as a guide to when I donate, and uh, I try to give two or three times over a six to twelve month period. You know, that way it's uh, easier to just cash flow and it doesn't uh, strain the family budget so much. If I want to give two hundred fifty bucks, I can do it over three or four donations, and it's just. Uh, money I just don't spend eating out or having coffee that month and that's fine it goes for a much better cause um, um did, did, can you go back real quick uh, Scott sure was there any um, more discussion about raffle prizes and the reason I asked that um is we are uh, giving away a week at Turks and Caicos for at VP5M and we originally started to go through PayPal and we found out that PayPal will not allow you to pay uh for chances and raffle prizes and things like that so we we had to do a lot of research to find the correct way to do it and the legal way to do it. And, and it's very difficult. Um, and I know it varies from state to state as well. So I'm curious if, did, was this just brought up or did anybody get further into the details of how we might start doing this? That's a great question, Bill. I, I don't recall there being any discussion about the details. And many years ago, I helped organize the W0DXCC for two years running. And we ran into uh, some club members who said, wait a minute, you got to follow the Minnesota law for uh, raffle prizes, which we did. Then all the money went to Northern California DX Foundation. Um, but I, I think uh, it would maybe help if uh, the ARL or someone just uh, did a little research for that and, and helped. Uh, these are these are going to happen in 10 to 20 U.S. states, not many more than that. Right. And right. Uh, so I think it would be helpful for there to be some some guidance out there. Maybe one of our attorney hams uh, who uh, is a DXer would be willing to look into this and to just provide some basic advice like Fred Hoppengarten has for antennas, because uh, it's a great point. And, you know, now, of course, with PayPal starting this year, this calendar year, anything you sell, you have to prove to the IRS that you, you what your basis price was for it, uh, because PayPal is going to be reporting it to the IRS. You know, it's a it's a big thing in the used ham market. You know, if you sell a radio for three or four thousand, you want to make sure you, you have documentation of what you paid for it, so you're not taxed on the entire sale price as profit as a capital gains profit. So, and I think we're going to see more and more need for what you just said, Bill. Is it okay if I move ahead to the next? Yes, step? please do. Well, that, that yeah, was, yep. yeah. This was this brought a lot of discussion and probably went on 15, 20 minutes. And uh, you know, there were a number of questions raised. Um, one. Uh, one younger ham who's only been licensed since about 2005 stood up for the DX uh, forum and he said, uh, 
you know, he said, I'm, I'm only got 190 countries or something. And he said that when I look at the honor roll, I don't think I can make it. I don't think I'll ever make it in my lifetime. There's not enough time left because uh, there are some countries and places like Johnston Atoll and North Korea that I just don't have any hope of ever working, you know, and should we have a new award for other younger hams, you know, should we, what can we do to encourage newer, newer DXers like me to stay active and not feel like it's a 50 year life cycle to get to the honor roll. And uh, one of the, uh, hams in the auditorium dave anderson k4sv who's been on a number of top 10 d expeditions and his honor roll member and top of the honor roll ham said what about changing the mileage distance requirements for an island so that instead of being 300 and some odd miles maybe it's 125 miles offshore so that we could basically create 10 or 20 new dx cc entities we'd all have them to work and it would not it would not take away from what others have worked, but it would make getting to the honor roll maybe a little easier because then you could have greater likelihood of making sure you could work some of those entities. And really no one on the uh, on the forum panel had any comments on that. I think it's probably not a new question, but you know, Ned, maybe you want to comment. I suspect you've been on the DX advisory committee in the past. Yeah, well, in some 15 years ago, roughly, they, the DXCC rules were changed uh, from miles to kilometers, uh, uh, some number. And, and just that conversion uh, triggered, I think, two countries. So, uh, yes, there, there's, you know, if you were to reduce the, the size of the uh, these, uh, distance by, by, by water uh, rule, you could enable a large number of countries. I know there are uh, a number of uh, of uh, hams who plan the expeditions that are, you know, going over nautical charts, finding, you know, rocks that, that are exposed, uh, you know, most of the time, and maybe with, you know, global warming, you know, that would going to be more. Um, and, and there's a, a lot of, uh, uh, and there's a lot of pressure to uh, uh, declare some island groups uh, uh, in, in the Arctic territory um uh, that uh, uh probably even more challenging than Bouvet to get on as as new entities so there's a lot of people pushing for that and and if you were to change that uh it would it would uh trigger a large uh, you know a group of new 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 uh, the expeditions now I'm not sure what your math uh background is or uh, Scott but but you'll still never get to the top 10 even if you add another 50 more uh countries that there'll still be 10 that you don't you aren't going to get so, uh, uh, but what it will do, and I know this happened when the the uh, uh, PJ uh, uh, country was uh, uh, deleted, and four new uh, PJ two, PJ four, five, and six, seven, you know, uh, created four new countries. The the uh, those of us who changed traced band entities had this uh, really really good week when we added, you know, you know. 30 or so new uh, uh, counters to our DXCC challenge award. And it was a, it was a good week. Uh, and those are fun. And, and, and you're right, adding more uh, islands will always uh, add more uh, uh, fun things to do on the radio. Um, yes, yes, but you're right. Uh, if, if to be on the honor roll, you have to be within 10 of top of the honor roll, I believe, right? Nine or 10. And you're still never going to get there, right? Uh, yeah. Unless unless several of those get on. <laughs> uh, but, but I would also the the flip side would be I've been stuck at three oh seven now, and all of a sudden, if if instead of looking at three forty, we're looking at three sixty, 
maybe I wouldn't be stuck. I'd still be picking up a couple this year and a couple next year. So you would still feel like you were making some progress. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a artificial feeling, I suppose, but you'd still feel like you're making a little headway. Yeah. Um, Another thing that's thrown out is that, well, an alternative uh, way of looking at, at awards is to look at the uh, the marathon uh, program, the CQ Magazine Marathon program, and that way, you know, you just work the ones that are active, and and that way you, you're not, you, you know, you're, you're competing against competing against others who who are who are going to have the same opportunity to work the, uh, those countries as you do. So uh, that's another way to play. Uh, it's not, the, you know, it's not the same program, uh, but it, and it, you start fresh every year. Let's pause for a message from ICOM. ICOM, aim higher and discover the world of SHF. Explore the world of microwave with ICOM's new SHF portable, the IC905. This all-mode rig covers 144 to 5600 megahertz bands and with the optional CX10G transverter, 10 gigahertz. This portable also has a few industry firsts under its belt. The IC905 is the first radio to support the five major bands, VHF to SHF, a PoE RF module for flexible installation, and is compatible with amateur TV and analog FM mode. Other features include a large 4.3-inch touchscreen color LCD, real-time high-speed spectrum scope and waterfall display, Easy digital mode settings, high-performance GPS antenna included, full D-Star functions, DV slash DD mode, and an SD card slot. And hey, from May 19th through May 21st, hams can find ICOM at booth 2608 at the Dayton Ham Convention 2023 in Xenia, Ohio. Don't forget... Stop by booth 2608 at the Dayton Hamvention 2023 from May 19th through May 21st. We hope to see you there for the love of ham radio. For more information about ICOM's amateur offerings, visit www.icomamerica.com slash amateur. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, if you get a chance, who has some real strong feelings on this, and I'm kind of speaking for him, is uh, uh, Ray Novak, N9JA. Mm-hmm. Um, in our conversation, um, my goodness, two years ago now, I'll bet, um, we started a program called the DX Mentor uh, Program. And what we're trying to do is find people who have helped hams under 30 achieve DXCC. And one of um, Ray's issues or or comments um, was simply that it always drives him nuts when we do the last man standing because anybody in the room that's at 180 or 190, they look around a room and see, you know, 90-year-old people saying, oh, yeah, I got 350 or I got 360 or what happens to be. I I mean, this kid's in his, you know, he's 28 or 29, and I think he's drawing the conclusion he's never going to get there. So, you know, that that bugs Ray. and, And... Clearly, I'm speaking for him, but uh, so it was his high idea to start this program where if we can start acknowledging those mentors who are helping young DXers move up the chain, maybe that's where our focus ought to be. Um, so I know that's not quite what we're talking about here, but he's he's very passionate about it. And um, it's a great conversation. I don't know what the answer is, but 
but he really got a he got us to thinking enough that we actually put a program together. So, um, you know, Bill, anyway. I think I think we have to acknowledge a couple of uh, real issues when we talk about changing any program. Right? It's who's going to gore my ox or who's going to move my cheese. A number of my friends have achieved honor roll plus or top of the honor roll plus. And we should never do any change to the program that detracts from what they've done. For example, Ned, my friend, lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it's a lot harder to work 300, 330, 340 DXCC entities than it is if you live on the coast of Maine, right? I mean, this is really the challenging. This part of the world in Southern California, it's hard. And uh, I think we need, instead of talking about if or they, why don't we instead say, all right, let's keep our DXCC program going, but why don't we come up with some other awards that people who are newer in the hobby at any age, right, can can strive for? Maybe it's, uh, you know, who achieved DXCC in less than a year, right? That's very doable. You you go visit a contest station, join the ND7K or the uh uh, the the N7TB NA7TB contest stations out of Phoenix, and boy, you can do it in a weekend with the, the antennas each either of those groups have, and Ned's part of the NA7TB contest group. Uh, so you know, I think, and also I would just say to Ray, if I if I when I'll see him at Dayton, I hope is let's extend that age up because I know a lot of new hams who are starting retirement or in their 40s or 50s. They've got the kids raised and the kids are through college. They're looking for their hobbies again. And they, they either not been in ham radio or they just got back in it and they want to they want to do it too. So, you know, I think uh, we need to understand that we not only need young people, we need middle-aged people to keep the activity numbers going until those young people can, can grow into the hobby because we have so many people over 80 who are active DXers who are going to either stop at operating or unfortunately go QRT that we want to replenish them. And it's just a real challenge, right? And of course, there was discussion about the radio in a box and could we do it or should we put boats in the harbor and not require antennas on the island? And, you know, I, I really respect those who are pushing the offshore operation, but it's just not the same as being on the island. And I don't think we're quite ready for that change at, at all. Uh, well, you know, that's, I'm going to stop sharing because that's really all, all that I recall from the discussion. But uh, let me just also say, if I may, um, Ned and uh, his uh, John Miller and uh, uh, Paul Ewing, and uh, I forget your other co-chair from uh, the San Francisco area. Uh, Clay Cougar, yeah, Clay Cougar doing register. Clay Cougar, yeah, they did an amazing job of taking a meeting that has not been done for three years and allowing for a lot of us who are, tired of being pent up at home, who are just saddened by the what the pandemic has done to our lives and our families, who were ready to come back out and to see one another and to reminisce and maybe get a little bit back closer to what was normal before this uh, plague hit the world called the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, of course, Bill, I was touched. Uh, and, and, and even though I'm a physician, this was still sobering to me. How many silent keys were read off by Paul Ewing at the banquet, maybe 20 to 25. And then he asked if the audience would care to name call signs of DXers who had passed away in the pandemic. And there were an equal number. It sounded like a huge pileup. Wow. And, you know, it was just sobering to realize that it's been three years. And, um, you know, I think uh, part of the, one, one of the things that this hobby does is it gives us all a, an outlet for stress or an outlet for fun. And uh, Ned and Clay and, and Paul and their team really gave us that again with this meeting. And uh, 
Again, like I said at the start, I think this is the best meeting for HF and VHF DXing and contesting you can go to in a given year. Your budget only allows one meeting. I love Dayton. I love the Sodexa DX dinner. But boy, this is a good one. And you don't, it, it's smaller, it's more intimate. You know, I spent a half an hour in discussion with uh, Eric Swartz of Ellicraft. I have a couple of K4Ds now, and I'm looking to get them going with remote. And he was telling me about the plans and when the software and the K4 Zero will be out. And I'm not going to steal his thunder. He'll have more to say about that at Dayton. But it was just nice and an unhurried, less intense, fewer people per vendor time you really get to talk to the vendors i had a nice discussion with john uh, from stepper i have a broken two element stepper and he told me what i need to do to get it fixed and I need to call him and get things set up for that and you know i had a nice discussion with tom schiller who's helped me with my own antennas and tom even did some modeling and sent it to me to help me think about antenna purchases uh, from other vendors not from him you know whether i should do it or not and uh, so it's just a really great meeting, and it's just just to see that the, the the hands from overseas, and to see your friends, and then the call signs that you worked. And my friend from uh, the uh, Granbury, Texas, W five D and T, said uh, to me on the phone last night. He said, "Tell Ned Stearns how much I appreciated him coming to dinner Thursday night." He said, "Ned's a giant in this field, and I finally got to meet him, you know, and he's a rock star." And uh, you know, you know, we're not, none of us are celebrities, but some of us have done an extraordinary number of things in the hobby, like Ned and like the Bouvet team and others. And it's just nice to be able to sit down and chat with them and to realize they're human like we are, but they also have a lot of insight, a lot of knowledge. And, uh, you know, to hear like K9CT talk about his receive antennas, it stimulated my thinking of what I could do at my station to improve 160 and, uh, to talk with Ned and Lee and Mike about their remote station helps me understand what I can do to improve my own home station. It's just a great opportunity in an unhurried, relaxed, intimate kind of way to see the people who are the movers and shakers and the visionaries and the innovators in DXing and contesting. So, uh, you know, Ned, uh, like I said the other day to you, kudos to you and the team, and thank you for all the work you did to put this on. What was attendance, Dad? How many how many people came this year? I think it was four eighty three or four eighty five in that neighborhood. And as we were approaching the finish line here in mid March, we were guessing we would get to three seventy five. But it just just something happened uh, in the last month or so. It might have been the end of the pre registration deadline or something like that. But but we just started getting you know the hockey stick curve uh, kicked in. The the thing that got to me, I was. <laughs> This is interesting. I was I was running around like a, a crazy person. I was uh, uh, I was also the AV guy, uh, and trying to keep two two tracks going was uh, was a challenge. I'd be bouncing back and forth between the rooms and and getting ready for whatever's next. And I and I saw these two uh, young men standing there, you know, big smiles on their face, kind of looking around. And, and I stopped and introduced myself. And they said, "Yeah, well, we live here in Visalia." And uh, this is the first time we've come to this thing. This is the first time we've been to the convention center here in Visalia. And I said, well, you know, welcome to Visalia. Uh, but but that, but we found out later that we had 85 first-time attendees, which is almost 20% of the people there uh, had never been before. So that kind of, in my mind, uh, offsets a little of that, that, that echo, uh, that that moment when we heard all, the, all of the silent key calls being uh, in that pileup at, at dinner. So that, so, and I, and I wonder, well, how did that happen? And, and I think how it happened is because we've advertised like crazy on Facebook, Twitter, 
uh, email bombs. Uh, and we didn't, you know, not a single piece of mail was sent to anybody. Uh, you know, no flyers were sent to any clubs. Um, you know, we, we used, uh, you know, uh, 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 social media as our primary uh, and, and email as our primary communication path. And, and, and I think that's a very important thing you have to consider as you go forward, because that's how, that's how people uh, interact anymore. So, um, now, uh, uh, one of the big topics of discussion is what about next year? Um, and it had been announced before the convention that uh, the Southern Cal uh, group uh, was not at the time uh, interested in, in holding it next year. So um, lots of my time was spent over the weekend about discussing that. And and I, I'm here to say that, that uh, stay tuned. Uh, I, I think most people were just uh, just blown away about uh, how well this worked, and that, that may, there are there's some reconsiderations going on about next year. So wow. no, nothing to report just yet. Uh, yeah, I think this is fascinating. Uh, you you talk, Bill, about about the prize list being pretty good. Uh, we actually ran out of raffle tickets Friday afternoon. Um, we, if we had had a printing press in the uh, parking lot, we would have been printing money. Uh, in fact, I talked to one guy and said, "Hey, don't don't fill all those raffle tickets out. I bet you could sell them at twice the price tomorrow, because you know a large uh, number of our attendees only you know could start coming on Saturday. So felt bad they didn't have raffle tickets to buy. But best you could say, hey, if you had your chance, could have bought them before the uh, the event, like we kept telling you to do. So uh, so apparently." Uh, the the prize list uh, was attractive, uh, and uh, and or people uh, haven't uh, you know had hadn't bought a new rating in a while and wanted to uh, take a shot at the uh, at uh, the, the incredible lineup that we had. We had the best best of breed. We had uh, you know K4D as a grand prize. We had a Flex uh, 6400. We had 7610s from Icon. We had uh, FTDX 101s from uh, Yesu. You know we had it. We had uh, we had quite a lineup of, uh, of, of gifts that were uh, of prizes that were available, and uh, and there was big demand. So uh, that that's that is a very very important part of, of this program is, is uh, this this whole convention is uh, and our history has always been that we we go uh, beyond most other uh, events in terms of, uh, of putting together a uh, a list of prizes to to. To be interested in, and uh, so it was a part of our success this year. So these, one of these prizes that I have shared right now, these are only the big prizes. I won a watt meter, and uh, someone else won a thirty-five amp linear power supply, and wow. there were thirty to fifty of those that were given away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have a Bagali simplex paddle. That's a four or five hundred dollar value. A stepper urban beam. That's a two thousand dollar value. Yeah. Uh, the premier radio showing my bias, the K4D. And if you're a flex person, the 6400. And every radio sold is on the Sherwood top 20 list. I mean, every radio given away was on the Sherwood top 20 list. Uh, and they even had a youth prize, a young man who had just been licensed, and he won an, an ICOM radio, a power supply, coax, and an antenna. He's going home to be a DXer. And I think his dad won a, another prize. Um, so if someone was, can, can you give us a little logistics? How many days in it? Where, I mean, you say Vizalia, I happen to look it up, but I really didn't know where it was. So maybe a, just a quick overview for 
those of us have already put it on the potential calendar for next year. Uh, Ned, maybe a little logistical details. Yeah, well, it, the the Visalia became the, the the resting place for this, this where this settled because it's equidistant from uh, L.A. and from San Francisco. It's about 150 miles uh, southeast of, of San Francisco and 150 miles northeast of L.A. So it's in Central California. Just got on uh, uh, Sabre 99. Uh, uh, I, the way I approach it is I drive up from Phoenix, uh, go over the Great Bond on the I-5, and then take 99 north uh, uh, to, to Visalia. It's a nine and a half hour drive from here, you know, like 12 hours or so from, from Tucson. So those of us from Arizona, uh, we drive a lot. Uh, we get to this place. Uh, one of the drawbacks, though, about Visalia is that for international visitors, they there is no direct flight from London to Visalia. Uh, you have to fly to Frisco or LA, uh, either thumb ride up or or fly, take a connection flight to to Fresno, uh, which is the closest uh, uh, really commercial hub, and then uh, rent a car at that. Fresno is about forty five minutes uh, drive north of of Visalia, so it's a uh, it's one of the the comments we get back a lot about that it is hard to get to. And, you know, this is an International DX foundation, uh, convention, and we, you know, we should tailor to more of our international uh, friends. But but if we moved it to L.A. or to Frisco, we would lose the uh, the interest in, in the other side of the state. So it's uh, it's a challenge. It's, uh, it's the way it's going to be. And maybe we need to work on a better process of, of shuttling international visitors uh, to the event, given, you know, the hams that live in the uh, LA or San Francisco area. I've always thought that would be a, uh, another option. And, and if we considered another place like, uh, like, like Vegas or Phoenix, you know, yeah, okay, those are hubs that people can fly into, but then, you know, then uh, we would lose uh, a lot of our attendees from, from the both uh, North and South California areas. So it's, it's a, it's an annual discussion, and we always end up staying in Virginia. How far would it be? I flew into Fresno, and I would just say, if you're like me and you're going to have to fly in, there are connecting flights via Dallas-Fort Worth on American Airlines, United through through Chicago as well as Denver, maybe Chicago, but certainly Denver. I flew Delta through Salt Lake. You can fly American also direct from Phoenix. The flights from LAX up to Fresno are like a small tele- turboprop plane. I wouldn't. Uh, I'm not sure it's a. It's, my, it's a. It's a commercial airline. You don't names. You don't. You don't recognize. I believe. And I think San Francisco. You have to drive down. But there are direct flights in from big hubs for the three major U.S. carriers. Also, Fresno is fed by Southwest Airlines, uh, and uh, so they fly through Denver. So lots of choices, you know. And buy your buy your tickets early. Uh, uh, the, this year, the tickets were really expensive. They were like twelve or fourteen hundred dollars for an economy class ticket. So I use frequent flyer miles to come. Uh, but I think if you can, you know, buy your ticket, typically you can I buy them in September, October, November uh, to come out before the demand goes up uh, and the prices go up. And what is the website, man? Dxconvention. Uh, well, just do a search on idxc two zero two three. It comes up with the. Uh, uh, yeah. or dxconvention.com yeah dxconvention.com yeah we transfer the web ownership back and forth between the north and south area of the year okay i'll put that in the show notes um the other thing in your notes um scott if if you can take a minute with it hit me personally was uh, there was a discussion about the qsl bureau so i'm, I'm taking this back a little bit to your your mm-hmm. notes that you were kind enough to send me but 
Um, I'm just kind of a, a nut about QSL cards and being a card sorter and all those kinds of things. And I've been kind of waiting for this to happen. I mean, it's to me, the handwriting's on the wall, but I, I couldn't really tell from your notes whether that was major D expeditions are saying that they aren't going to use it or just in general, the whole, the whole program's just slowly come. No, to it was, it was, it was really uh, some of the D expeditioners on the, the platform were saying that they're just going to stop responding via bureau for bureau requests that it costs them money they don't collect any money for doing it uh and that it's just not not financially viable when when the post-covid de-expedition prices are 10 to 50 dollars per qso or 90 dollars per unique call that they just can't be giving away qsls i know it's the final courtesy of a of a confirm of a, of a contact but you know that was in an era when it was three cents to mail a letter yeah and uh, now it's between four and ten dollars to send a QSL overseas by direct mail. Um, so right, that that was what that was about, Bill. Yeah. Okay. And, and I know and most of the just time, have but... to say that Ned just confirms what I heard on your podcast a few months ago from Kate, one of your one of your guests. The digital marketing works for promoting ham radio events. That's right. Let's take a quick break to see how you can be the DX. The Southwest Ohio DX Association, in conjunction with the owners of Harbor Rock Villa, announced a major prize raffle to raise funds to support the expeditions. The prize is a week at Harbor Rock Villa in the Turks and Caicos Islands. This gorgeous villa has room for six, a well-equipped amateur radio station, multiple antennas, the use of a vehicle, and assistance in obtaining a VP5 license. The winner will provide their own transportation to the island and meals. This raffle prize is worth approximately $5,000 and will be awarded at the 2023 DX Dinner held in conjunction with the Dayton Hamvention. Please visit www.harborrockvilla.com stroke VP5 hyphen ham hyphen radio hyphen the number two to view the villa layout, the amenities, and other details. For updates and more information, search VP5M on QRZ.com. Chance tickets are capped at 500. The cost is $25 each or five for 100. You need not be present at the DX dinner to win. More information and tickets can be found at swadexa.org stroke VP5M or by emailing me, the DX mentor at gmail.com. Don't just work the DX, be the DX at Harbor Rock, Turks and Caicos in VP5 land. I'll tell you what else it's working for us is we've gotten uh, six new members in the last month or so, and five have come either through a podcast discussion or the Ohio Section Journal where we write a uh, weekly column. So um, there are different ways we've got to make sure we're we're getting our message across to these people, and um, and they they're receptive. We just got to get it in front of them. Um, I and encourage I encourage anyone listening who, who's part of a DX club to invite the organizers for, for the DX convention to come and do a Zoom to your club sometime next year uh, in the fall or early winter just to promote it, right? I mean, yeah. just as you know, we promote the Swodexa banquet and things, we need to promote Visalia. So Ned presented to the Twin City DX club for us in March. I'm not sure anyone else came, but um, you know, we, we should have had him on in November or December and uh, I think that we would probably have five or 10 more people coming from the upper Midwest out for this. Well, maybe I'm, I'm the scheduler for our club, Ned. So maybe I'll pencil you in for November and okay. contact you midsummer. But please, as soon as the decision is made and the dates and make, make sure you drop me a note and I'll, 
get that out through all the media that that I have access to. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it, if it happens, there's a good chance that my club will be involved again. I mean, we traditionally have been worked with both North and South over the years, and we'd continue to do that. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is that it's already a late start if you started today to get this process going. So. Uh, but I think in the next uh, two to three weeks, uh, if, you know, and if there is an announcement, we'll hear something in the next two or three weeks. So, so we can start doing long-range planning and and start promoting it uh, around uh, more because you know this is uh, this is the one. Yeah, you know, I've been to Dayton a few times, uh, and it's a completely different experience. Like 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 Scott says, it's it's you get to talk to the to the people that that are uh, you know are either do what you want to do or have done amazing things that have just been, uh, you know, some of the most significant things in your, in your ham radio career, working this guy on that country. And, and you get to sit down and talk to them and face to face. It's just a, just an amazing experience. The, the thing that's impressed me with all the, the folks on the, these podcasts, as well as um, uh, presenting at SEDCO and, and, you know, meeting at just different forums is, Everybody has a, pa- a passion for it once you get them started. And, you know, the, the, the rig in the box guys, for instance, when I start talking to Greg and um, uh, Hal Turley, it's kind of like, wasn't ready for that. I better get a cup of coffee and sit down because they're engaged and they want to go. And they're just an example. Uh, you two are a great example, but the people you've named, you know, you start talking to them about um, funding a de-expedition. Boom. You know, the, the best way to organize a de-expedition. Boom. Plenty of discussion, wire antennas, um, portable antennas. It's just one topic after another, and everyone's loaded with passion. And to me, that, that's kind of the the fun of the whole thing is to just, I think, Scott, you said a minute ago, you hear certain things, and now you start thinking, gee, what do I need to do at home? And and I'm already, I even talking to Joe Pater last week, it's like, you know, my beverages really didn't work that well last fall. Um, I got to get with him in the next couple of weeks and, and get a new game plan. And that's what starts happening. You know, you start, you get jazzed about it. So. Um, anything that is a final note that you're thinking of or um, comments otherwise? Well, one of my uh, couple things. Um, well, uh, the Northern Cal DX Foundation booth uh, had uh, a lot of traffic. Uh, we had uh, several things going on. We had we had our own little raffle. Um, it was very successful, and we also had the uh, rock collection. Uh, that the foundation has. We have almost 200 uh, countries confirmed with rocks uh, that we show on display, and, and we added the Bouvet rocks uh, this weekend. And we also had uh, serial number four of the radio in the box or rib on on our dis- our booth there that lit open, and 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 there was a swarm of people around that thing the entire time. And then we also set up and we operated real time with the rib that's out on on. Uh, in Papaiti Harbor uh, in uh, French Polynesia. And uh, so we had uh, people who had an interest in running a, a DX pileup just sit down and run the station in That's cool. sound mode and work in a pileup. I mean, it was something for everybody. Uh, uh, so that that was a, that was just a, a lot of fun. Now, one of the other things that the foundation, uh, they made an announcement at the uh, DX uh, uh, forum that uh, I mean, we had a uh, foundation uh, meeting uh, Saturday morning before uh, festivities started, and one of the things we uh, decided to do is to start to get serious about deliberate QRM, which is becoming a uh, a, a real uh, problem uh, for de expeditions. Is you know, especially those which are 
constrained to run low power, like the Bouvet operation could, could only run 100 watts because they just didn't have enough generator power to get to a kilowatt. And so they are vulnerable, more so than most expeditions, with to be drowned out by the effects of deliberate QRM that, that we seem to see. It, it, personally, I, I hear more about it in Europe than I, I, I see here, at least in the West, uh, the United States. Uh, uh, but I think that that you know, okay, the expeditions are returning, but uh, but those those who enjoy uh, jamming the expeditions have been waiting dormant for years, and they're they're back in their game. So what we the foundation has decided to do was to do what we do best, which is to put aside a fund to uh, and re and accept proposals for for people to study uh, uh, solutions to the problem, and those solutions might come in the way of of uh, you know signal processing uh, equipment or or maybe it's uh, direction finding uh, equipment uh, uh, in order to locate uh, people who do this or maybe it's to study different be behavioral uh, operating techniques in running a pileup or something like that but but the but uh, the, the we're open for uh, to hear uh, for requests from uh, those who, who might need some financial assistance to complete uh, a project that may have some impact on on this problem going forward. So this is something that that uh, we announced at the at the forum, and and apparently uh, it was well received because we got we got a good good applause for that. That's terrific, and what a great use of funds. Yeah, really great. Yeah, so Back? people are oh, wondering sorry. what funds for foundations do. Yeah, we award grants to the foundations. Yeah, we're working on technology, and and now we add to that uh, we're working on uh, on DQRM uh, resolution. You know, one thing I don't want to go into here, but one of the tools that y'all provide that I take a lot of uh, advantage of is the beacons, um, especially when I was in a lot of mobile work. Um, I used to use the beacons a ton just to kind of, um, I didn't have to stop driving. I could just, you know, do do a memory re recall and and then I could listen and, uh, and then, boy, those were terrific tools. Um, and I, I love that tool. I I. I have a heart in that too. I've, I've been developed an antenna that we're trying to deploy to more than one site, um, uh, and that's a challenge in itself. But but I I've, I've been studying propagation uh, characteristics. I've been uh, I've discovered a way to find uh, sporadic E openings using the beacons. So um, I, I I'm I promise papers for all kinds of things, and 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 that's what I want to get get going on is because we're going into the summer season, and and you can actually predict sporadic E by watching wow. the beacons. It's an interesting, uh, interesting thing I've found that, that the world will know about here shortly. Well, I'm connected with a couple of newsletters, so if you need to test your content anywhere, uh... <laughs> yeah, okay, you're good. Scott, are... any... <laughs> Scott, anything on your list that we wanted to touch on? I think we've covered it, Bill. Thanks for talking about Visalia. Uh, Again, I just encourage anyone who's never been but has an interest in DXing to think about going next year. You know, you don't have to fly a number of hams. You know, when 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 W0GJ and his wife drove from near where I live, and Dave and his friend Greg drove from the North Carolina South Carolina border, and uh, you know, I think W8GEX and AJ8B could make a nice road trip uh, next year. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't afford the tab, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but you know, we, that's funny you say that Karen and I have been looking for a, a project to, to rent a mobile home and maybe I could get Joe and Janet and 
the four of us could just motor out there. That would be a hoot. You'd, you'd have too much, you'd have so much fun, you wouldn't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a shame, huh? <laughs> well, it's a pity Joe couldn't join us today because, uh, you know, I hope to see him at Dayton and he and Janet at the at the DX dinner at Dayton. So hopefully this will uh, go live on uh, on your your uh, playlist before Dayton so we can see you there and, uh, you know, just uh, support your uh, DX, support the regional DX meetings, the W4DXCC, the W9DXCC, and all of the regional DX meetings that go on. It's a great way to keep the hobby vibrant and to uh, maintain some fellowship because uh, the friendships that we make through this hobby are the most important things. And if anything we have learned from the pandemic is don't take them for granted. Uh, there were people I was looking forward to seeing at Dayton that I heard call signs right off who are now silent keys. And I'm like, oh man, I haven't talked to him since three or four years ago. And I'm sad I don't get a chance to chat again. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. So, wow. Well, I appreciate I'm going to uh, push this out both on uh, podcast and YouTube on Monday uh, because of the uh, Vizalia just finishing up. And um, I think it's building some momentum for Dayton. And, uh, uh, Ned, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting you somewhere. Uh, and I, of course, uh, both of you, I appreciate you guys taking your valuable time to meet with us and uh, get this out. And we're slowly creeping up that listeners and subscriber list. And, uh, boy, with you guys, it's it's it makes it easy. So, uh yeah. Uh, I'm excited and uh, but seriously keep me in mind with it when there's new Vizalia news I'll get it out to everybody and uh, okay uh, we'll see what we can do we'll certainly do that well gentlemen thank you so much I sincerely appreciate it and if there's anything I can do here in the uh, RF hole of the Midwest I'd be happy to uh, to lend a hand or do some testing or whatever but I'm always here for you okay thank you very much for having me all right thanks guys thanks 73 73 wow as soon as Ned tells me when the the 2024 convention is to be held, I'm looking at airline tickets and some hotel rooms, you can bet. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the DX Mentor Podcast. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, ICOM America, The Daily DX, and the Southwest Ohio DX Association. You won't find anyone more committed to DX than these sponsors. I would especially like to thank our gurus on this podcast, Scott, K0MD, and Ned, AA7A. I would love to have your feedback, answer your questions, and provide help with any DX or amateur radio issues that you may have. If you need clarification on something or you just have a question, email me at thedxmentor at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter using the TheDXMentor handle. You can watch this presentation on YouTube under the DXMentor channel. An episode schedule and more information can be found at aj8b.com slash the hyphen dx hyphen mentor hyphen podcast. Please drop me a line if you've achieved an all-time new one, received recognition, or have a DX event that you'd like us to mention. We would be happy to do that. 73 for this episode, and as always, thanks to my XYL Karen for her love and support. <laughs>